Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1978 film Superman. Now here's your host Jeff Cummings. I'm flying high about this episode, and not because it's about the Man of Steel who can leap tall buildings in a single bound. I'm excited because the Baton has now reached its 50th episode. It's a milestone I knew I would reach eventually, but it seemed so far away when I started recording episode 1. And now, here we are. Thanks to everyone who has reached out with words of support and encouragement, including a commenter who wrote, Best podcast ever in the Podbean app comment section. I promise I won't let that go to my head. We've got a great score to talk about for this milestone episode. Just as he did with Jaws and Star Wars, John Williams created music for Superman that is instantly definable to the character for which it was created. So much so that every iteration of Superman that followed this, even those that, that did not directly involve John Williams, felt compelled to put some pieces of his iconic themes into the scores. Joining me on today's show is another big fan of the Superman score, Doug Grieve. Doug, it's great to have you with me on this episode. It's super to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me on this 20-hour podcast to discuss the score of Superman. Yes, I bet we could talk for hours about this great score. Doug, please give the listeners some background into your musical training. Well, I could sum it up by saying I was in the band in high school and in college, where I majored in music. Then after I graduated, I went right into aerospace. During that time, I got married and raised four kids. As the kids got older and left the house, I started playing trombone again. I joined a trombone choir that was founded by George Roberts, a great bass trombone player who played in many of the John Williams' early scores. He used to joke about making money by just playing two notes. He, of course, was referring to his work on jazz. As part of my involvement in the group, I started arranging film scores. I worked with music from composers like Korngold, Victor Young, Nicholas Rosa, Elmer Bernstein, John Barry, and the much-mentioned Jerry Goldsmith. Of course, John Williams also is in that mix. Also, I currently am the national director for an event called Trombone Christmas, which is a series of open invitation concerts given in different communities throughout the United States. That sounds like a really good musical history of yours. I'm glad to hear that you have found your way back into music, too. Now, though your professional career didn't take you into the music industry, I would imagine that it's impossible for you to listen to a piece of music and not think like a musician. Well, it's, it's easy, uh, because music at this time in my life is a hobby. I do have a switch. For the most part, the switch is off, and I can enjoy music like for music's sake. If I hear something unexpected or some great playing, the switch comes on. Also, if I hear a piece of music I think I could arrange for trombones, I go into Nelson Riddle mode real quick. For those listeners who don't know, Nelson Riddle was one of Hollywood's premier arrangers of the 50s and the 60s and is another one of my great musical heroes. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts about this score to Superman. Like nearly everyone listening to this episode, I know the music very well, and I'm sure you do too, but I think we'll both learn something new that we could share with everyone. So I suppose we should start with a little history about bringing Superman to the big screen. I'm surprised that no one had ever thought about putting a superhero, not just Superman, into a feature-length movie until the 1970s, given that comic books were all the rage starting in the late 1930s. Of course, the logistics of making it look like Superman is flying with no evidence of trickery wouldn't be feasible until the 1970s anyway. But Superman was a popular TV series in the 1950s, starring the great George Reeves. Once the TV series ended in 1958, Superman continued to be popular in comic books, but had no major representation as a live-action superhero. Enter Ilya Salkind, a Mexican-born child of a movie producer and a novelist. I have to admit, Doug, that I had always thought of Ilya Salkind as an Eastern European based on his name alone. And that is partially true. His father, Alexander, was born in a German territory to Russian parents shortly after World War I. Alexander fled Europe during World War II and married a Mexican woman, and they would give birth to Ilya. 
Alexander produced a lot of Spanish-language films in the 1950s and 1960s, with his son Ilya learning from his father. Father and son became a producing team, though as he got older, Ilya began to take a leadership role. That was true when the two set their eyes on bringing Superman to the big screen. Ilya negotiated with DC Comics for the film rights, for a sum that has never been publicly disclosed. The upside was that the Salkinds had total control over any TV and film representation of Superman for 25 years, which would end in 1999. The Salkinds didn't hold on to the rights that long, though, selling them to Canon Films in 1986 after the failure of Supergirl. So many people wanted to play Superman that it would take an hour to list them all. Most surprising was reading that Sylvester Stallone wanted to play Superman. I read an interview with Ilya Salkind who joked about Stallone playing Superman, and you'll have to envision a Stallone-Rocky mashup when you think of Superman saying, Hey, yo, Lois! Yes, the casting of Superman was a big decision. Do you go with a name or an unknown actor? Here are some of the actors they were considering. Clint Eastwood, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman? Hmm. A very serious consideration, I guess, was given for Burt Reynolds. Out-of-the-box thinking brought in names like Muhammad Ali and Neil Diamond. But after the dust had settled, and with the added pressure of a growing budget, a skinny soap opera actor was given the part. Under the condition, he would put on some muscle. To help the actor fulfill this promise, Richard Donner reached out to our own Darth Vader, David Prowse who in six weeks took our 170-pound Christopher Reeve and made him into our 212-pound Superman. Finding the director was just as tough. Steven Spielberg was interested, but he was too tied up with his pre-production of Close Encounters of the Third Time. Guy Hamilton, the famed director of James Bond films, was hired and seemed to be a natural fit. However, that started a chain of events that led to a need for another director. The production was set to take place in Italy. However, Marlon Brando, who was to play Superman's father at a cost of $3.7 million and 11% of the profits, he couldn't go to Italy. It seems the authorities there were still upset with his involvement in the film Last Tango in Paris. And if he would, uh, he would be arrested for obscenity charges if he stopped one foot in the country. So the production was moved to England. What could go wrong? Well, at that time, Guy Hamilton was in tax exile from England for all that money he made making James Bond films. Good grief. One frame of film hadn't been shot and already we're dealing with warrants for arrest and people forced to leave their native land. Well, once Richard Donner came aboard as director as a follow-up to The Omen, things didn't really improve that much. From the first moment, Donner and the Salkinds clashed on creative differences. The big issue was bringing in Tom Mankiewicz to do an overhaul of Mario Puzo's script, cutting it in half, and removing many characters. Plus, some of the scenes that had been filmed in Italy were not of good quality to Donner, so he suggested that the production start from square one. Yeah, production for Superman took 19 months. One of the reasons for the shooting length was the plan to shoot two movies, the original and an already planned sequel. On paper, that saved a lot of money for on building sets and etc. But in practice, it was a nightmare. The result was that the fall of 1978 post-production deadline was not going to be met. That affected a lot of people involved in production, including the original composer of Superman, Jerry Goldsmith. For those who might be surprised at the thought of Goldsmith writing the music for the film, remember that Goldsmith had a great relationship with Richard Donner, winning an Oscar for the Donner-directed The Omen. However, since there was not enough finished film for Goldsmith to start writing, and he was working on five other films in 1978, he had to bow out. Well, we don't have to imagine what Goldsmith might have composed for Superman because he got the chance to write a score for Supergirl in 1984.
Now with Superman in need of a composer, the man at the top of the list at that time would be, of course, John Williams, who was finishing up his work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the Salkinds asked him to take part. I've talked before about the working relationship between Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams, and we can only wonder what went through Williams' mind when he was asked to take over a film score after Goldsmith had to leave. This is not the first time Williams was the second choice's composer, but it certainly had to make Williams feel good that his work at that point, which most importantly included Star Wars, was helping him get work. And it didn't hurt that production was taking place in London, which meant he could hire his favorite musicians, the London Symphony Orchestra. After Williams saw a very rough cut of the film in October 1978, he got to work. One of his challenges was writing music for the prelude that brings us into the story and the lengthy opening credit sequence that follows. This five-minute musical opening would be the longest piece of music he'd write for opening credits at the time, beating out the music that plays over Fiddler on the Roof credits by about 30 seconds. Though Williams had conceived of the thematic material that would play in the credit sequence very early in the composing phase of this assignment, it was one of the last pieces of music he recorded for the film, waiting until the visuals for the opening credits were finalized. The credits music was performed on the second to last day of recording, October 31, 1978, while the prelude music was recorded on November 4th. This is an amazing five minutes of music. Let's really listen to it. And then we get to the main title, which opens with a repeating rhythm of dotted eighth, followed by a sixteenth, followed by an eighth note, which starts in the basses. And just like Jaws, John teases the audience with a little gap in the pattern where it generates some tension. Then adds some cello, violins, and when Richard Donner's name appears on the screen, in comes the unmatched brass section to take command. uses strong melodic intervals, the fifth being one of them. To the listener, it comes across as being a secure place. So no matter where he goes with the melody, he always finds his way back to the tonic of the key. The tonic is the note that makes the listener feel like he's arrived at a destination. All the creative ways that John Williams gets back to the tonic is what makes this such a great score. The interval is a distance in pitch from one to another. If the notes are played at the same time, we call that a harmonic interval. If they're one after the other, they're called melodic. A melody or a theme is a string of melodic intervals. Much like an inch and foot are used to describe the distance on a ruler, music gives these distances names. Some examples are minor second, minor third, perfect fourth, or in Jeff's case, it's the favorite perfect fifth. So let's see what they sound like on the piano.
Here is an illustration of what I mean when I say John uses strong intervals. Let's say I take a hundred random people and I put them in a room. I give them each a score sheet. I randomly play melodic intervals. After each one, the participants are asked to rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being, uh, I like it a lot. 1, it's boring and I really didn't like it. Kind of like Jar Jar Binks. When the survey is compiled, you'll notice that the many of the intervals that John uses in his theme score very high on our survey. I have heard many people point to John's earlier works and say, listen right there, he's, writing, he's developing the theme for Star Wars. I don't think he's developing anything. He likes certain intervals, and there always will be overlap as John writes more music. Remember, John Williams' job is not to be the next Stravinsky. He is to enhance the movie-going experience with every technique available to him. In the Superman march, John uses perfect fourths and perfect fifths. These intervals come in very high on our survey. If these two intervals were played together as John does, it forms an octave. Here is the theme from the start. The basic pattern here is we up a, a perfect fourth, then a perfect fifth, down to the octave, and then we repeat until it resolves our journey to the tonic of the key. So let's hear how John Williams makes great music out of these basic intervals. You know, I love it. I absolutely love it when John Williams uses the perfect fifth. As I talked about with the Star Wars main theme, it instantly suggests heroism. And here it helps the music take flight as it's supposed to. In the classic American and British style of marches, the main theme is stated twice, and another music idea is stated to supplement the main theme. This section is called a trio. I believe that's what John is doing right here. It's a different music idea, but it complements the main theme. And that section does come back later in the score, so it will serve a purpose. Now, we're ready for the real meat of this theme. And once again, John is sticking with the fourths and the fifths. This is a perfect fifth going down, then up, then the perfect fourth going up and then down, followed by the perfect fifth down to the root. Using these intervals, he establishes the tonal center of the march. It is like a springboard to send us to the dominant chord in the last part of the musical idea. Now, the distance between the tonal center and the dominant chord is a perfect fifth. That interval, which you love so much in Star Wars, is repeated several times in different ways all through the march. Here is the theme on the piano. If I can go back to the bit to the discussion with George Reeves' TV show. That music for the opening and the main theme for Superman have a little connection. That is a syllables for the name Superman. Musically, that syllable translates to a basic rhythm of a dotted eighth with a sixteenth followed by an eighth note. The rhythm is a motif for both the TV Superman March and John Williams March. Here is a bit of the TV Superman theme.
The original TV Superman march was copyrighted 25 years after the first episode. I'm pretty sure the company that owned the rights to the march heard that the movie was being made. If they wanted to get paid by the Selkines, they needed to get a copyright. When filing a copyright, the name of the composer must be identified. After 25 years, no one really remembered who wrote the theme, so Leon Kaskins got the credit because he was one of the arrangers on the TV show. Most of the music used in the TV show was either purchased from stock libraries or borrowed from other composers. It would have been nice and great if John Williams' early studio work included some time on the TV Superman series. Then we would have gone full circle moment here. Yeah, it makes you wonder if John Williams listened to a bit of the TV theme for inspiration, or if the director or producer pointed him in that direction. So, finishing up our discussion of the main title music, we hear the gorgeous love theme played after the main Superman theme. It starts out on the same heroic tone as the main theme, but gets a bit lusher in the flutes later. And then we get reprises of both Superman themes to close it out. I think there's a connection both musically and in character to the TV and film versions of Superman. I give credit to the director Richard Donner, who decided not to reinvent the persona of Superman, but just to update it. Also, I gotta give it up for Dennis Wick and the London Symphony trombone section for nailing those two measures of driving eighth notes at the end of the piece. It always puts a smile on my face to hear them go for it. In a way, the length of the opening titles is our journey from the Earth to the planet Krypton many light years away. And after all that heroism in the previous five minutes, we get a drone in the bases that transforms it into an ominous chord progression. It's a warning to the audience that you might not be going to a safe place. But as the audience gets close to the son of Krypton, the trumpet fanfare defines the destination as a very important place. And as the audience sees the planet, the trombones echo the fanfare to second the motion. The French horns come in with driving 16th notes to add nobility. Trumpets and trombones build the echo until the whole orchestra enters with big chords. As the audience arrives at Krypton, the trombones pound the echo again and again. With one last echo and the big finish, John Williams opens the doors to the bus and proclaims to the audience, We're here! Get out!
And if you read the liner notes in the 2018 CD release of the score, you'll see a quote from Ilya Salkind saying, quote, The only thing I asked John Williams to do musically was to make the Krypton opening sound like 2001 A Space Odyssey. So that's why it's a bit like Richard Strauss's Also Sprachzauertrustra, end quote. And I remember making that connection many years ago when I was listening to the Krypton opening. I had to pull out my DVD copy of 2001 to make sure I was correct. And while it's not an overt ripoff, I can hear the similarities, mostly because the two are written in the same key of C major. C major is a great key for an orchestra because the string instruments can play notes with open strings, which produces a more resonant sound. Normally, the lowest note on a double bass is an E, but 90 years ago, the extenders became very popular additions to the instrument. This device lets the bass go down to a low C. That would give it a nice bass tone on which to build the sound of an orchestra. Outside of the main themes for Superman, I have to say the theme for Krypton is my favorite piece of thematic material in the film. And even though Krypton will be destroyed in the first section of the film, the theme will make several appearances throughout the entire film in various ways. It's music that will show grandeur, gentleness, and mystery, all through different parts of the orchestra. This is really great writing here. It is my favorite piece of music because no one takes the time today to write like this anymore. Here, here, I can, you could can say that again. The screenplay focuses on three moments in the life of Kal-El, slash Clark Kent, slash Superman. His brief life on Krypton, growing up in Smallville, and being Superman in Metropolis. And John Williams recognizes the different tones in the film, especially in the cinematography, and contributes to that musically. You can feel the dissonant quality of some of the music on Krypton, but that segues into Williams trying to write music for a 30-minute Norman Rockwell painting depicting the scenes in Smallville. We're going to talk about that gorgeous music as Clark decides to leave home, but before that is that mysterious quality to the Krypton theme I mentioned earlier as Clark is drawn to a crystal calling out to him in the barn.
And then John Williams pulls on our heartstrings. The music for Clark's farewell to his mother in that wheat field is one of the most emotional scenes in the movies. You don't even need the visuals to appreciate how gorgeously composed this is. We didn't mention the theme for Smallville, but it comes up here in the oboe and then fully developed to the end. All right, here we go. Get your Kleenex ready. Yeah, this is one of those great tracks that John Williams writes where he really doesn't want you to hear him. He just wants to be felt, and you can feel him just trying to stay out of the way and just build on the emotion being brought to you by the scenes on the film. And the bulk of our film takes place in Metropolis, where Clark Kent settles in as a mild-mannered reporter at the Daily Planet. After a brief scene showing him catching a bullet and preventing a robbery, we finally meet our villains. The one theme that Williams wrote for the villains can be interpreted for all three of them. The first interpretation is of Otis, the slow and portly henchman played by Ned Beatty. This theme is introduced by the bassoons, who are often called the clowns of the orchestra, and is perfect for Otis. Thank you. 
After that, the music is dialed out of the film for two minutes. Then the tuba plays the villain theme as Otis navigates the underground lair while eating the pretzel he had just purchased. This is great music, but there are some alternate cues on the DVD which looks like scenes were cut and might be one reason why John wrote the concert suite for the soundtrack album. Too much good music to waste. The concert suite reminds me of Richard Strauss to Odenspiegel in that it's very programmatic. As it is in the film, the concert suite introduces the theme with the bassoons, then states it again with the oboe and the tuba. The oboe in this case is Lex Luthor, the genius of crime, showing the two working together. Interestingly, the oboe and the tuba are not in the same section of the orchestra and can be up to 30 feet apart. Then the music translates to a playful section where it represents the mischief all the villains eventually gets into with Luther's crime of the century. Passages are passed through, back, and forth with no sense of order of the music. The theme is restated in the flute and the tuba, and in keeping with my original theory, the flute represents Miss Tussmacher. There is a resounding climatic restatement of the theme, led by the trumpets and the full orchestra. Then, like most villains, they scamper off into the night, with the orchestra engaging in a slow diminuendo, passing parts from the theme through the orchestra and ending with the flute and the piccolos of an ascending run as they go into the night.
you can really tell that John really liked this theme to go to the trouble to put it together. Oh yes, I could definitely tell. He doesn't write concert suites for just any theme. And I really like how he never makes Luthor and his group seem really evil, even though they are planning to kill millions. It's all very much rooted in the comic book feel that is underlying the film. I think this is a good time, as any, to mention John Fletcher, the principal tuba player for the London Symphony Orchestra at this time. Fletcher was on the same level as Tommy Johnson and Roger Bobo, both who have been performed on many John Williams soundtracks. Sir Glyve Gilson mentioned in his Star Wars episode that John Williams wrote for great players, and John's writing for the tuba shows his utmost confidence in Mr. Fletcher's in Superman. Another theme that gets a wonderful concert suite is the love theme. Again, it's a strong melodic writing. In this case, we start on the ma a major triad that lands on the tonic and then springs into the sixth interval, then steps down into the fifth of the key. Let's hear it. Though we hear it in the main titles and in a brief moment after Superman's first heroic rescue, it doesn't get its full treatment until Superman takes Lois on a ride over Metropolis. And we can't go any further without talking about Can You Read My Mind? This marked Williams' first foray into songwriting in five years, and he brought in his friend Leslie Brickus to write music around the love theme. It was to be sung by Margot Kidder as Lois Lane while she flies with Superman. Margot Kidder's voice isn't really conducive to song, and it seemed everyone recognized that after she attempted to sing the lyrics. And, to make sure she wasn't humiliated further, those recordings of her singing have never been made public. But, no one wanted Brickus's work to go to waste, so Kidder read her lines instead. Can you read my mind? what it is that you do to me? I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. Quivering like a little girl shivering. You can see right through me. Can you read my mind? Can you picture the things I'm thinking of? Wondering why you are 
the wonderful things you are. You can fly. You belong in the sky. You and I could belong to each other. If you need a friend, I'm the one to fly to. You need to be loved. Here I am. Read my mind. It's not a terrible solution, but I think Williams and others could have found a singer who could replicate Kidder's voice and could carry a tune. If they had, I bet the song would have been nominated for an Academy Award. Unfortunately, because the lyrics weren't sung, the song was ineligible. To this day, I can remember exactly my reaction when I heard it. I was with a bunch of friends at the Fox Theater on Victoria Boulevard in Ventura, California. We were having a great time. The music was great. Christopher Reeve was perfect. The flying effects were amazing. And all of a sudden, this, whatever it was, broke the fourth wall. What were they thinking? We all started looking at each other. I think the rhyming patterns make it laughable since no one has talked that way since Shakespeare's time. About a year after the film was released, Maureen McGovern, who performed on a couple of songs in The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno, took the lyrics and made a beautiful recording. Let's talk about another great scene in the movie. I really love the first appearance of Superman as he rescues Lois from a falling helicopter. There's a bit of comedy in it as we see Clark Kent running to a phone book to change into his Superman costume, just as he did in the comics and on TV. But the phone booth in the movie is not a booth, but more of a partially open case. I laugh at that every time. It's another instance of the filmmakers shaking up our expectations. While he's looking for a place to change, we get that ostinato in the bases, waiting for Clark to become Superman so the brass can join in.
once he dashes through the revolving doors, we get... Lois will slip and start falling, but she'll get caught by Superman as their love theme gets a heroic statement on the trumpet, followed by the best rendition of the Superman fanfare in the film. I would imagine that people in the theater in 1978 stood up and cheered when Superman caught the helicopter one-handed, and not just because the visual effects made it completely believable. It was all John Williams. Yes, we did. Everything came together in the sequence. The music, actors, the special effects. This is my favorite part of the movie. Whenever I see a big action movie, I find myself gravitating towards those slower scenes where the actors get to do some good old-fashioned character development. Although it's not a really big musical scene, I really like the first time Lois interviews Superman. It's just a real treat. There's so much chemistry between the two characters. Oh yeah, the chemistry between Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve was definitely a big reason why audiences made Superman a success. The Superman score was another reason too. It was a monster hit for John Williams. I found four reviews of the film that were written in 1978, but only one of them mentions John Williams. That review was in the Washington Post, written by Gary Arnold, who called the music for the flying sequence, quote, sweetly scored, and called the theme for Superman rousing and propulsive. All four of these reviews I read were very positive about the film, but it wasn't enough to make it the biggest movie of 1978. That belonged to the musical Grease, which is as timeless as Superman, but amazing that it could rule the box office in 1978 given the declining popularity of musicals at the time. There was no denying the technical prowess of the visual effects department for Superman. The tagline for the film was, you'll believe a man can fly, and boy did they prove it. No one had a bad thing to say about the special effects, which also included a massive earthquake that split open the San Andreas Fault and Superman turning back time to save Lois Lane. The visual effects wizards received an Oscar for their work on the film. 
John Williams was one of the many people recognized at awards time for his work on Superman. He received an Oscar nomination for his score, pitting his work against four other great scores. One of the films that forced Jerry Goldsmith to back out of scoring Superman was The Boys from Brazil, and Goldsmith got an Oscar nomination for its score. There was also Days of Heaven from Ennio Morricone and Heaven Can Wait from Dave Grusin. The winner was Midnight Express from disco producer Giorgio Moroder. I really enjoy the score to Midnight Express, and I'm not upset that it beat Superman for the Oscar. But you have to wonder if Oscar voters thought Superman was just Williams doing Star Wars again and decided he didn't need two Oscars in a row for that. Well, Jeff, I would be in that group of John Williams fans who think we got robbed. Not since the 1939 Oscars where Robert Donat beat out Clark Gable for Best Actor has there been a bigger miscarriage of justice. But oh well, we can all agree that the presence of John Williams' music made that Superman movie super. Well, I will say this, Doug. At least he won two Grammys for the soundtrack album and the composition of the main title music. So kind of a little bit of revenge. His win for Soundtrack Album of the Year was his third in a row and fourth in five years. It's a streak that was not going to end very soon. Well, Doug, this has been a fun exploration of the Superman score. Thanks for being a part of it. My, 20 hours passes quickly when you talk about John Williams. (laughs) Thank you so much for letting me be part of this musical journey, and I cannot wait to hear more. Thank you very much, Doug. And this also wraps up our look into the films of 1978 for John Williams. Not much of a break awaits him as he has two big films to score in 1979. One of them marks a continued collaboration with Steven Spielberg, while the other is his second and final foray into the horror genre. That latter film is Dracula, and it's the film I'll be discussing on the next episode. You know how to reach me in the meantime with comments. Send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. I'm so happy you took the time out of your day to join us. And until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>